You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John's Gospel, chapter 7. We're going to begin reading with verse 14 and read through verse 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Heavenly Father, we stand before you this morning, Father, and we are in um, utter need of your uh, hand to be upon our hearts as we approach your word. Father, we pray that, Lord, you would open up our hearts to receive your word. You would open your word to our hearts, that as we look at these words, which are yours, that, Father, we would hear your voice. Oh, Father, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. And amen. Well, we continue in our study of John's gospel, and as I've said a couple of times throughout, that in terms of a time frame here, we're approximately six months before the crucifixion. And we learn that from verse 2. Where we're told that the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. Uh, this puts the calendar... Uh, sometime between late September and early October in the fall. And this week I was uh, uh, spending some time uh, in the writings of a man by the name of Alfred Edersheim. I don't know if that name means anything to anyone. If anyone's familiar with Alfred Edersheim, he, he has an interesting perspective on the Gospels. He was a Vienna Jew who was converted to Christianity uh, in a previous generation. And uh, with his Jewish background, he offers a lot of uh, insight into uh, the Gospels. And what I found really fascinating by reading Edersheim this week was he was talking about the weather, the typical weather. It's not something that we would, I think, think about uh, being so far removed from the Holy Land and so far removed from the culture uh, of which we're looking but uh, you, you'll recall that I had made mention of the ancient historians, how they said 
that the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles was the most popular of the three feasts which required all of the male Israelites to return to Jerusalem. And um, we might ask ourselves, why is that? Well, Edersheim had a, a really not a real sensible comment on that. He said because the Passover feast oftentimes was very cold. It was winter. Well, I don't think we think of that very often, but, um, you know, sometimes late March, early April can be quite cold even around here. Uh, so that was a deterrent for some people to travel. Mind you, they're not getting on the, south, on the Southwest 338 or whatever. They're on foot. Um, and then he spoke of the Feast of Pentecost, of climate being really hot. Uh, but then he spoke, but in regards to the Feast of, Feast of Tabernacles or in regards to the Feast of Booths, the weather was nice and cool in the fall and it was a lovely time to travel. <laughs> Quite sensible, quite sensible. And I, I um, uh, uh, offer that to you because, you know, I, I think that house gives us some insight here. Uh, this is something that people would do year after year after year and combined with the, the fact that it's a, uh, a celebration of the harvest, it's a, a celebration where tents are being made and people are are, are dwelling in tents for the week, and the weather is fantastic. You can imagine the memories and all of the whatnot that, that goes and takes a part in this feast. And I share that with you because I think in many ways it helps us get into uh, the text. Now, we're told in verse 14 that about the middle of the feast, you know, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And last week I spoke a few words about that. There's just nothing unusual about that. Uh, rabbis were teaching in Jerusalem all the time, and this would especially be a good time to be down there teaching because the the city is filling up. It's literally swelling up uh, with not just with people, but with people who have sensibilities uh, or people who are religious, if you will, people who have um, uh, a desire to follow the Lord. So it's a perfect time to be teaching, and Jesus takes opportunity. He begins uh, teaching. And again, looking back at, uh, at Edersheim, Edersheim, now this is conjecture on his part, but he conjectures that Jesus is teaching on Solomon's porch, uh, which if you're familiar with the temple, you can look at pictures of the temple this afternoon if you like. Uh, some of you have pictures of the temple in your, um, in your Bibles, but again, it's conjecture on his, port, on his part, but uh, he believes that Jesus was teaching on Solomon's porch. But what we do know in verse 15 is those who heard him teach literally marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And in the original, you'll have, some of you have footnotes to this effect. What they're really saying is, how has this man learned his letters? Uh, what letters? The letters of Scripture. How in the world does he have such mastery of the Scriptures when he's never been to any of the rabbinical schools? Uh, is the question they're asking, and they're marveling at. And if I might offer a comment that Calvin makes in these regards, which I think is really uh, insightful, is that on the surface of all of this, the fact that uh, Jesus, of course, doesn't need to go to a rabbinical school. If he went to a rabbinical school, he'd end up being the teacher at the rabbinical school. But in terms of his disciples, the fact that they've never went to a rabbinical school is really pointing to the fact that the teaching that Jesus is, uh, is uh, preaching is heavenly and not earthly. 
Let's imagine if Jesus had sat under a famous teacher in Jerusalem for uh, a couple of decades. Well, then where would the praise be going? And we could almost imagine a whole host of young rabbinical candidates wanting to study at that school and all the glory going to that school, couldn't we? I think it's really insightful. And um, they're marveling in verse 15 at Jesus' teaching. He's not teaching elsewhere in the Gospels. We, we learned that he didn't teach as the rabbis had taught or the scribes had taught. He taught as one who had authority. And Jesus speaks as to where that authority comes from in verse 16. He answers them saying, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And last week we spent some time looking at that authority. Where do we get authority to make the gospel proclamations that we make? Well, they come from the Father. You know, when we are sharing the gospel and someone says to us, well, that's just your opinion. Well, then uh, we want to lovingly correct them and say, actually, that's not my opinion. It's what has been taught by Christ. And he is the one who's been sent by the Father. He is God in the flesh. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible teaches. That's a, that's, that, is a perfect, that is a perfect way. Have you ever read the Bible? What? Come on, let's take a look, and I'll show you where these places are. Um, and and I, I can tell you from personal experience, that's the way to do it. Um, some of you will know that my modus operandi when I'm reaching out to people is to get them reading their Bibles, right? Just get people reading their Bibles. This is not my opinion. Look what Jesus says here. He says, he says my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. See, that's where the authority comes from. This isn't coming from our church. This isn't coming from ARP tradition. This isn't coming from uh, RPTS where I went to school. This is coming from Jesus. And Jesus says he has brought it from the Father. This has come from the sovereign creator of the universe. That is where the authority comes from. That changes everything when you start saying that. Uh, so we want to teach our minds uh, to go there. In verse 17, we have just an incredible statement uh, it's an incredible statement, uh, eye-opening when it comes to uh, when it comes to trying to sort out how we become believers and why uh, some people see things and other people don't see things. You look at verse seventeen. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking from my own authority. I spoke a good bit about that last week, and this week I want to speak about it again, but from a slightly different angle, which I think will give another layer of paint to it. Let's think, because what Jesus is speaking about here is an inclination of the heart or a heart attitude, if you will. And if we start by thinking of the unbeliever, the scoffer, the scorner, um, the atheist, if you will, there's a certain heart bent or heart attitude that's at play there. And what is that heart attitude? That heart attitude is, I do not want to give up my autonomy. In other words, I do not want to give up control of my life. I like my life the way it is. Fine, thank you. I have a few things where I wish were different, but I really don't want Jesus meddling around with my affairs. And as long as the heart attitude is that way, there's going to be no discernment. There'll be no discernment. Whereas Jesus said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Because you see, the heart attitude of the believer is radically different, isn't it? 
What is the hard attitude of the believer? The hard attitude of the believer is the attitude that sits before the book with a heart that's open and says, Lord, I've had enough of running my life my way. It's done nothing but make a mess. I am open here to running my life your way. And this attitude of heart, as it receives truth from God's Word, implements those truths, not perfectly, but progressively in their lives. And Jesus says it is that person who's going to know. In other words, it's going to be that person who's going to be able to discern. And why are they going to be able to discern? Because where else does this heart attitude come from but from God Himself? This is not something we can do to ourselves. If we're sitting here this morning with that kind of heart attitude, let's not glory in ourselves. We know better than that, right? We glory in the Lord who has worked this attitude in our hearts. Last week we looked at Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul makes it really clear. It's God who works in our hearts to will these things, isn't it? Now what a magnificent verse that is. More about that, Lord willing. We're going to come back to that. In verse 18, we see motivation. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus was on about one thing, glory of the Father. And last week we looked at how Jesus was tempted, no less than two times, to go put on a fanfare in Jerusalem. Now, first and foremost, the Father has never asked Jesus to go put on a fanfare in Jerusalem, go down to Jerusalem and do all these, uh, all these miracles, if you will, put on a fanfare in order to glorify Himself. He was never not commanded by the Father to do it, so He refuses to do it. He refuses to do it when, this, when Satan himself takes Him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, listen, cast yourself down during His... Uh, uh, temptation in the wilderness, if you will, after his baptism. He refuses to do it a second time when his siblings are tempting to do the same, right? He's on about the glory of the Father. I have a prayer request. I know it's a little late. Um, hopefully you'll allow me this prayer request. My prayer request is that you will pray for me that when I stand here on Sunday morning, I will stand here for one reason only, and that is the glory of the Father the glory of the Father. Please keep me in your prayers that way. The glory of the Father. Does that make sense? And what happens is we do this. If what we're on about is the glory of the Father, we don't, we don't shy away from controversial issues. We don't shy away from truths that we know people don't like. We, don't shy, we preach the whole counsel of God. We do it for the glory of the Father, right? We don't stand here to be people pleasers. Because then we're going to be leaning on some other authority. And actually, at the end of the day, it's going to be for some other angle, isn't it? It's going to be for some other angle. It's going to be for someone else's glory, not the Father's. Does that make sense? That's what we did last week. Last week, we were looking at authority. We were looking at discernment. We were looking at motivation. Now, this week, we begin in verse 19 where Jesus begins to make an argument here. And it's, it's an argument that requires uh, quite a bit of care in order to get through to, uh, to, to understand. Maybe some of you read it and get it right away. Um, I think Ren's got it. I think, I think she's got it. Um, um, she's given her amen to that. Uh, but some of us are a little bit slower uh, than, than Ren. And it, it might take a little bit. We might have to put our thinking caps on to get this. In verse 19, God, Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now notice there's two questions and a statement sandwiched in between. 
right? The first question is rhetorical. Has not Moses given you the law? The answer, of course, is yes. Okay? Everybody, his audience would embrace that. They, you could hear three or four amens, preach it, brother, in the back when Jesus says that. Then Jesus says, yet none of you keeps the law, and the crowd falls silent. Now, why is that significant right now? Well, because there's a plot to kill him. Now, why is there a plot to kill him? Because he's breaking the law. And he looks at them all and he says, has not Moses given you the law? Amen, brother, preach it. Why do you seek to kill me? Or none of you keep the law, I'm sorry. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, the crowd don't like that very much. The crowd says to Jesus, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Now, some commentators on, this, on these two passages, they, they, take, they take an argument that goes something like this. Oftentimes, the people on the grassroots level are not, of a, are not always aware of what the leadership is up to. Now, that's a true statement. And they'll say that the crowds, the common garden variety people in the, in the crowds may not have known that there was a plot on behalf of the leadership to assassinate Jesus. They may not have known it. And that may be true enough. However, I, I want to draw your attention back to verses 12 and 13 where we, we read on behalf of the people, there's a bunch of muttering about him. And some are saying he's a good man. Others are saying he's leading the people astray. But verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. I think everybody gets the impression that there's a lot of tension here. Otherwise, why are they whispering? Now, do they understand that the tension is so high that they're seeking to destroy him? Maybe not. But I think it's without controversy. They are aware uh, that the tensions are high. Speaking about Jesus can get you thrown out of the synagogue. They're accusing him of being a blasphemer, which is a capital offense. He's breaking the Sabbath, another capital offense. So I don't know. I think you perhaps there was a lot of people that weren't aware, but I don't know. It seems to me that there's probably more people aware of this than, uh, than not. But let's concede that they're not aware. Jesus knows all hearts, doesn't he? We've seen this over and over again in the gospel, right? And he says to them, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Now, we could say, broadly speaking, this is true. None of us perfectly keep the law. All of us have, are guilty of violating the law. There's the, we're all sinners. He could be speaking broadly like this. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's much more specific than this. The heart of fallen man is not neutral towards Jesus. In fact, Jesus puts it this way. If you're not with me, you're against me, right? But there's no neutrality. We're either, we're either for Jesus or we're against Jesus. But there is no fence in the middle. There is no 
middle ground. And Jesus, who knows all hearts, looking at this crowd, he says to the crowd, why do you seek to kill me? And they're bewildered by that statement. But yet in six months' time, many people that are in this crowd will be the same people who holler what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And it won't be something new on behalf of these people anymore. What it will actually be is the real disposition of their hearts just coming out in expression. Because that is where the fallen human heart is. The fallen human heart is not neutral to Jesus. It is at enmity with Jesus. Does that make sense? So he says to him, Moses gave you the law, right? Yes. Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? They, they, they have a problem with that. You have a demon. In other words, you're mad. You're speaking like a madman. Who is, you're out of your mind. Who is seeking to kill you? Then Jesus answers in verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Now, what's Jesus doing there? It's a line of argument. It's a very powerful line of argument. He says, Moses gave you circumcision. Okay, they get that. And he says, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. They would get that too. Why? Because infant boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day, and sometimes the eighth day would land on a Saturday. Now, when it landed on a Saturday, did they, uh, did they say, well, we can't circumcise little Junior today because it's a Sabbath. We'll have to circumcise him on the seventh day um, or we'll have to circumcise him on the ninth day. Well, no. They're to circumcise him on the eighth day. So here we have one law, if you will, namely to circumcise on the eighth day. If that eighth day lands on a Saturday, if it lands on a Sabbath, they're to circumcise him. So here you have one law, which actually is seen to be in a collision course with another law, don't you? Now, how, how are we to sort that out? How are we to sort this out? And, and this is in the context, if you will, of Jesus being accused of being a Sabbath breaker. How are we to sort all this out? And to sort all this out, we, we have to put our thinking caps on a little bit. I'm going to throw some categories at you. They might all be new to some of you. If they are, it's going to take a little time to sort this out. This is just the beginning. Um, some of us will be familiar with some of the categories, but I'm going to have sneaking suspicion that some of the categories are going to be new to us all. So if you, if you, if you, if you don't grasp all this, I'm just saying, don't worry about that. Uh, we'll, we're, we're going to have more opportunities, Lord willing, to go over this. But oftentimes when we think about the law, we, we, we put the law in three categories. And some of you will be familiar with these categories. We have the moral law, right? And that would be summarized by the Ten Commandments, correct? The moral law. Jesus summarizes the moral law with two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a summary of the, of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, if you will. And we all know our Ten Commandments, right? Everybody can rattle those off. If, if we don't know our Ten Commandments, please learn the Ten Commandments because the kids right now are in the back learning, guess what? 
the Ten Commandments. Now, do you want them to return to be your instructors? Probably not a good idea. So learn your Ten Commandments. Uh, so that's the moral law, right? And then you have the ceremonial law. What's the ceremonial law? Well, just think of ceremony. That would be the religious ceremonies of the Old Testament. That would be the sacrificial system, the pure purification rites, that whole battery of stuff, uh, the ceremonial law. And then we have the civic law, which would be the laws that govern ancient Israel as a theocracy. So we have these, and it's, these are important categories, by the way. These are very important categories. Write those down, uh, and it will help you understand uh, the Old Testament. It will help you understand how the New Testament is to be applied as well. Very important categories. So you have moral, you have ceremonial, you have civil, or civic, if you will. But there's four other categories I can give you, maybe not as quite as um, 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 uh, commonly spoken about, if you will, but these categories speak in terms of what the laws are grounded in. Let me give you an example. There are some laws that are grounded in the divine character of God. Uh, an example of that would be uh, the ninth commandment. Uh, you shall not bear false testimony or false witness. In other words, don't lie. If you want to learn the ninth commandment that way, don't lie. That's a good way to learn. That, that'll work. Don't lie. Okay, what? why? You know, we'll be three-year-olds for a minute, and we'll say, why? Why can't I lie? Because this is a moral law grounded in the very nature of God. God is a God of truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the what? The truth. God is a God of truth. In, there, in Him there is no deceit. In fact, we're told it's impossible for Him to lie. So the truth is grounded in the very nature of God. So some laws are grounded in the very nature of God. There are other laws that are grounded, given by God, but grounded in creation. An example of that would be marriage. When God created man and woman, what did He do? He officiates the first wedding Himself, right? And He, and he gives us this, this precept. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, right? So there, marriage is an example, if you will, of a law that's grounded in creation. Now, it's a law that's going, it's a law that's going to terminate. Jesus says in the next life, we will not be given to marriage, but we'll be in this respect like the angels, right? And that's why the wedding vows go something like this. Uh, do you promise to honor, to hold, to cherish till what? Death do you part. You see, so these laws are grounded in the fabric of creation itself. I would submit that the Sabbath is also one of those laws. Grounded in the, in the creation uh, uh, itself, if you will. God is instituted in gr and grounds that in creation itself. Now, there's a third category of law that's called positive law. And positive law is really simple. In fact, parents, you use positive law all the time. Positive law is law that is given just because God has commanded it. An example, do not eat from the forbidden uh, tree. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because I said so. How many times do we say that to our kids? They ask if they want to do something. We tell them no, and they say why. And you give them positive law. You've just given them positive law because I said so. And that's positive law. We do it all the time. 
What's grounding this law? I am the authority figure. I said so. Don't be scared to use positive law in the home, by the way. And there's not always, an answer isn't always needed. I think it's healthy sometimes when we just say, it's because I said so. And that ends it. Because it's teaching us authority. It's teaching authority. It's important. We don't want to be heavy-handed with that, but it's important. Now, there's a fourth category, and the fourth category would be laws that are unique to specific circumstances. And the ceremonial law would fill this, would fill this, uh, would be this type of law. For the ceremonial law, uh, the sacrificial system, for example, was given in order to typify Christ, wasn't it? It was, or, it was given in order to point to Jesus. So it was unique in that respect, and it was, it was surrounded by circumstances. The circumstances being, Jesus hasn't come yet. And that's why when Jesus comes, he can fulfill this law, and then this law can be set aside. Now, if this law was a law that was grounded in the very nature of God, it wouldn't hardly be able to be set aside. I mean, let's think about it for a moment. Could the ninth commandment be set aside? Could we reach a time or an epoch in history where, okay, now we don't have to worry about telling the truth? I think maybe at large our society feels they've arrived at that. Uh, but we know that to be ridiculous, right? So you see, it's important that we have these categories in our mind. You don't have to remember all this stuff. But let's think about the Sabbath right now, because that's where we're, we're, back, we're, in, we're in John chapter 7, and let's think about the Sabbath. What kind of law is the Sabbath? Well, these categories I'm giving you, these last four categories I'm giving you are not mutually exclusive. That means one law could actually fall into a couple of different categories. And the Sabbath is a moral law. It's in the Decalogue. And there's many people that disagree with that. And they say that the Sabbath was taken away with Moses. And what they end up with is a nine, they end up with a nine commandment Decalogue, which is a strange creature, if you ask me, a nine commandment Decalogue. I had a seminary professor that used to say this. He's gone to be with the Lord now, but this guy was so funny. He says, listen, if I offered you seven up in a Coke bottle, would you drink it? Eh, I don't think. There's something wrong with it. It doesn't pass the smell test. And I think a nine-commandment decalogue actually doesn't pass the smell test. There's a moral component to the Sabbath. And what is that component? The moral component of the Sabbath is we owe God worship. We owe Him worship. For starters, He's worthy of worship. Just by virtue of being God, He is worthy of worship. We sing that. You are worthy. He is worthy. He's worthy of worship. That's the first reason. The second reason, He's given us everything that's good in our lives, including a Savior. So how could we not owe Him worship? It's, it, it, unbelief has a moral component. That's why the greatest sin we can really commit, arguably, is unbelief. We owe Him worship. So you see, it has a moral component to it. But it's also positive law. Why? Because God said in the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace, God said, listen, on the seventh day, the seventh day, you're to worship me. So he sets the timing. Why? Because I said so. Because I created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day I took a rest. You see, I modeled this for you. This was an example. God doesn't need to take a rest. He doesn't fatigue. This was all set up for us. The Sabbath was set up for man's happiness 
for his health and for his holiness. For his happiness, his health, and his holiness. Not in any certain order. So it also would fall as a creation ordinance. So you see, it's, 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 it's creation, it's positive, and it's moral. Now why is this so important? It's, imp- it's important because being it's a positive law, not grounded in the nature of God like truth is, God can set, because of this reason, I can be on my way to church this morning and maybe on foot and walk through that alley right there and then notice in that alley there's somebody laying in the snow and they're still breathing. Even though, let's let's pretend that we're in the Old Testament economy. We come right through that alley right there. We see someone laying in the snow and they're just barely breathing. Would we say to them, I'd like to help you right now, but I can't until tomorrow. Picking you up would would be work. I have to get to worship because um, the fourth commandment. But then someone else could say, well, wait a second. What about the sixth commandment? What's the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not murder. Well, I'm not murdering. Hey, listen, if you're the only one that sees this guy laying back here and you walk past him and you're the only one that knows about him, you might not have murdered him, but you're, you're, you have an obligation. Part, of, part of, of sorting out what the Sixth Commandment means is, is welfare. It's, it's preservation of life. Now, what do we do? You see the ethical conundrum we get in here? I mean, really what I'm introducing is ethics is what I'm introducing here. What, what do we do? I mean, do I, what, uh, do I violate, do I violate the, the, um, the fourth commandment so that I can keep the sixth commandment? Or do I violate the sixth commandment so I can keep the fourth commandment? See, that's a mess, isn't it? And the answer comes in the fact that it's positive law. It's positive law. What do we do? We get the guy out of the snow. We take our coat off. We warm him up. We, get him, we warm him up as best we can. We call 9-11. We get an ambulance moving. We do what we can to help the person. If it takes an hour and we miss the service or an hour and a half we miss the service, that's fine. Because positively, there's a moral component to the Sabbath that we're to worship God. But positively speaking, God has set the time. Now, God can move that time. We know we're to worship. When we're done, we can worship. We can spend the rest of the day worshiping Him. We might miss the service, but we can spend the rest of the day worshiping Him. But this is how God can actually move the day from the seventh day to the eighth day, which is what He does upon the resurrection of Jesus, isn't it? It's because it is a positive command. And I'm going to give you something else. This will whet your appetite. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, I might talk about this more next week when we're talking about covenant baptism. But Jesus is raised on what day of the week? He's raised on the first day, but we could also say he's raised on the eighth day, couldn't we? It's the eighth day. And what is that pointing to? The first day is commemorating creation, right? What is the eighth day pointing to? It's pointing to recreation, not recreation, but re-creation. When Jesus raises from the grave, what happens? New life, huh? New life, right? Re-creation, if you will. The Sabbath points to creation in the Old Testament economy. It points to re-creation in the New Testament economy. Does that make sense? You see, there's a creation element to it. You see, there's a positive element to it. 
So therefore, we can find, like if you go back to Matthew chapter 12 for a moment, I'll show you how this works. This will give us a, a great example to see how this works. If you look at Matthew chapter 12 while you're turning, I'll start reading. Uh, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus gives them two illustrations. In verse 3, he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, let's set that aside. We'll deal with that another time. We don't have really time to get into that, but look at the second illustration that he gives. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, Jesus is borrowing the word profane from his opponents. The priests are not actually profaning the Sabbath. He's borrowing, he's contextualizing his comment, borrowing language from his opponents here. But what is he pointing to? He's pointing to the fact that on the Sabbath day, the priests had a lot more. They had more work to do on the Sabbath day than they had any other day of the week. And I am really thankful that we're not offering sacrifices today. I love animals. I can't, I'm, yeah, you know, I, um, I'm really thankful we're not doing that. But it's hard work. This is a day of rest. Yet the priests in this economy are working very hard on it. Yet they're not violating it. Now, how can that be? Because religious works are lawful on the Sabbath day. That's why. It's because of positive law. If we want to say, why? If we want to ask the three-year-old question, why? God can say, because I said so. Because I said so. And that settles it. So we have works, religious works. We have circumcision can go on the Sabbath day without any violation. We have all these sacrifices that are taking place on the seventh day uh, without violation, if you will. Uh, here the, the disciples are picking grain and they're being accused of being Sabbath breakers. In verses 9 and following, uh, Jesus goes from there and enters their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Uh, and uh, so that they might accuse him. Here they're setting Jesus up. And he says to them in verse 11, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, this is a simple enough thing. If we go home, if, if we were to go home on a summer, summer morning and we would discover our dog's off its leash, I mean, who isn't going to go look for their dog? It's the humane thing to do, isn't it? Or are we going to wait until the next day to go look for our dog? No, the humane thing to do here is to go find your dog before it gets hit by a car or before whatever happens. Uh, if they find a sheep in a pit, they're going to lift it out. It's the humane thing to do. Jesus says, well, how much, more how much more value is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he stretched, then he, he, uh, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. Now, why am I taking you through all this? I'm taking you through all this because I've heard sermons where preachers have said that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. I've actually heard with my ears that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. 
And that makes me cringe. That makes me cringe. No, he's not. When we have these categories, you see, we're going to really need, one of these days, I was talking with Jim before the service, one of these days we're going to have to sit down and talk about Christian ethics and talk about how all these laws work. It's, a fascin- it's fascinating to, to study. It's fascinating to look at. Uh, but no, Jesus has not violated the Sabbath day. And back to John chapter 7, he's arguing. He's saying, listen, God gave, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, it's actually from the fathers. It was given by God to Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? What is he referring to? Undoubtedly, if you go back to chapter 5, and you look at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus there is at the pool called Bethesda, and here is an invalid, a man who had been invalid in verse 5. He had been invalid for 38 years. And Jesus heals him, right? We studied that passage. He heals him. And in healing them, he's accused of being a Sabbath breaker by their estimation. Well, their estimation was wrong. He's not uh, breaking the Sabbath. And I want us to understand why he's not breaking the Sabbath. Jesus says back to John chapter 7, he says, Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, some of us, our heads may be just filled clear to the brim with new information. Some of us may not be so much, and those of us who don't have as much new information are maybe getting a better grasp of this. But if we're hearing all of this for the first time this morning, then it's a lot. And Father, we pray that Lord, you would help us to sort this out and help us to reflect on this. Help us to meditate on these various uh, uh, types of laws, moral law, ceremonial law, uh, civic law, and what the laws themselves are grounded in. For, Father, we know they're all ultimately grounded in you, but some are grounded in your nature. Some you have installed in the creation. Some are positive law just simply because you've given them. Some are tied up with unique circumstances of the ceremonial law. And, oh, Father, help us, O oh Lord, to sort these things out that we would see here that Jesus is innocent. He's innocent of the charges that are being heralded against him. And help us, O oh Lord, to see the fallenness of the human heart. O oh Lord, many of the people who are saying that Jesus is mad, he's gone mad, he has a demon, are the same people who will be crying, crucify him, crucify him. Oh, Father, we pray that this morning, Lord, you would fill our hearts afresh, Lord, with love for Christ, that Jesus actually would go to the cross, that we would see afresh this morning that Jesus went to the cross specifically for people who said crucify him. For, oh, Father, we once all had those hearts that were at enmity with you, that would have, on that afternoon, hollered, crucify him. No, Lord, we thank you for this great love that you've shed, this great love upon which you have um, shed upon us and have displayed before us at the cross. And we thank you for the new life that we have in Christ Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen.